and welcome to The Turning Point, a weekly show that's being created to help you overcome the challenges of having the career you always dreamed of. Together, we're going to be learning how to overcome those obstacles that may stand in your way. My guests will give you an insight into their own turning point and what issues they came across when starting their journey to a happier working life. On today's show, we have the wonderful Kirk Pickstone. Now, at 44, he discovered that he was dyslexic and has been on this magnificent entrepreneurial journey ever since. Um, he started in the uh, the big wide world of corporate. So uh, we're going to start back there. Kirk, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having us on. I've really, yeah, I'm looking, I've been looking forward to this. It's uh, Yeah, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No, no, pleasure's all mine, and I'm glad you're looking forward to it. I've, this this new interview process for me has been fantastic. Mm, good. Um, so as I mentioned, we started, and we just briefly spoke about, um, you've got a bit of a nice journey coming up. Started off by something not brilliant, but um, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning, eh? Yeah, let's do. I won't go right back to the beginning because we'll be here all night. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a there's a couple of key turning points in my life and my career, uh, as it were. Um, so if we go back to um, 17, 18 years ago now, I was. Um, I don't want to talk about the subjects in, in question, but I was I was married, my first marriage, and my first marriage, uh, you know, came came to an end, and and I found myself in a in a very peculiar position in, in my early thirties, where uh, I was back at my parents, I was in work, I was really depressed, like you can imagine, like most people are when they've when they've when the marriages split up, and uh, my boss identified this and said, Kirk, I think. Um, I think you need to get away. I think you need to clear your head. I think you need a new ch- something different to get you away from here. Come back a new person. So it's like right. That's that, that's quite a an unusual thing. I would I would imagine for a, a a boss to say that to you. I mean, obviously that's something that you you, you probably sat there thinking, God, what can I do? I need to sort of shake this off. And then your boss of all people comes up to you with that. I mean, that's got to be brilliant. Yeah, it was. I mean. <laughs> What I didn't talk about before, but I'll tell you now, is there was. Uh, I lived in Manchester, and there's the Barton flyover, Barton Aqueduct, and someone jumped off it one night, and obviously a few people do it to commit suicide. It's not a good way to go, but they do it. And someone had jumped off one particular night. I must have been bad because when I got in work, they were all like, "Oh my God, thank God you're here. We thought you jumped off." So I must have been really? in. Wow. I must have been in a pretty bad state, really. <laughs> um, so anyway, he says there's a four week to six week project in Holland. Do you want to go? And we're like. Yeah. He said, go, clear your head, come back. So I went to Holland, and because at that point in my career, I'd hit like a, a bit of a ceiling. I'd I'd not got any, um, I didn't have a degree and things like that. And, and if in a lot of corporate world, if you've not got those, that academic background, they're very reluctant to put you forward. So I'd hit a glass ceiling as like, you know, we put it. So I goes to Holland. Uh, it was an implementation for Reebok, pulling all their distribution into uh, Holland and then to send it out all over Europe. So it was a big project and I was supposed to be there for six weeks and I ended up being there for 10 months, which was quite quite, quite mm. a surprise from the four weeks. I mean, I ended up on a shift of, uh, of a team of people on my, on my shift that I was managing on the, on the sort of floor. They were, they were either Dutch nationals who spoke very little English or they were, they were people that had come to live in Holland who spoke very little Dutch and no English at all. So you can imagine that was quite a challenge. So How, d- how did it just turn from six weeks to ten months? Because they just, we needed to, they needed to, they had initially sent, 
about 30 or 40 us from the UK, from all over the UK in all different di- different sites. They sent us all over to get this operation up and running. And they realised that actually they put me in a position in a, in a, a leadership role. So I was actually a team, they called them team leaders, but I was a manager of a, a, a section. So what they did after a few weeks, they sent the people that were doing the day-to-day roles, if you like, packing and putting stuff on the lines, they sent them back and replaced them with people in Holland. But what they did do, they realised that they couldn't get rid of all the leadership team because the place would have basically collapsed. So they had to recruit those people to replace us. So they kept us on. So that's why I ended up there for 10 months. So I was over there for 10 months. And then after that, I I decided that I didn't want to go back to my site in the UK. So my boss sort of made a bit of a a profile there, really. But um, I'd seen that I'd met a lot of people in, in over there that were I'd never come into contact with, senior leaders within the business, directors. And I, I had people saying to me, Kirk, where do you want to work in Europe? Where do you want to work in Europe? Do you want to go to France? Do you want to go to Germany? Do you want to... I was like, no, I want to go back to the UK, um, but I don't want to go back to my site. So I decided that I wanted to broaden my portfolio tools, as it were. And one thing I thought was lacking, we had a bit of it in when I was in Holland, was automation. I wanted more automation on my CV. I wanted an automated site. So I ended up uh, going for a role with Dairy, the site at Dairy Crest in Dunedin. It's where I live now. Uh, what, 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 was the, what was the reason why you didn't want to go back to your site? Just Did you want a change or was it, what was the... I'd, yeah, because of what had gone on in my personal life, there's lots of bad memories there and, and lots of heartache. And I'd actually seen a different side of life and a different side of the world and, and things that I thought, well, actually, there's more to me than, than my role. I can grow. I can develop myself. So if I go back to my old site, I'll just be the shift leader I was or the chief manager that I was. I wouldn't become that person that I wanted to get to. So go by going back, I'd stay stagnant and I, and I just didn't want that. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. So the front, no, no, I totally get it. Yeah, so in between there, I went to Holland for Tyco Healthcare and did a, a bit of a mini project there as well. So it was great experience to work in Europe and Benelux. That was a really good experience for me. Yeah, I mean, it's there's obviously a massive culture change and you've you, you been there so long that you, you, you started to build your life there anyway, aren't you? So well, I guess staying in that, yeah, well, to be fair, just before I came back, I actually got offered a uh, permanent role in uh, Holland before I left Holland. I got uh, offered a, I, I got I have two options. You either take a permanent role with us here or you go back to the UK. And I was, I'd say, 80% going to stay. There's 80%. I nearly said, yes, I'll stay, but I'd actually met someone when I was in Holland and um, I decided to follow her back to the UK. Following the love, eh? Yeah. And it's the, uh, I'd say, the best decision I've ever made in my life. We'll, we'll make sure she listens to that bit. Eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get you some brownie points. I'm not sure she'd say the same. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so we're heading back to the UK. Yeah. And we're following the love and we're not going back to where we worked before. Yeah. Where are we going? Well, I was at Dairy Crest for a year. I decided to stay there for a year and then I ended up um, I wanted to go back because uh, my wife Sandra was up in Preston and I was living down in Nuneaton, so we was apart, you know, for, for 12 months, just, you know, weekends and things like that. So that's what we wanted to do. We said we'd we'd not met long. We wanted to have that, you know, we wanted to see how things 
transpose. So that's what that's why we did that. And then I ended up working for uh TNT, it's not TNT anymore, it's called Siva, but on contract logistics, I ended up on a what they call a central support role for but for one of a better word, I was a troubleshooter. So you can imagine this guy from Manchester who was working for Kellogg's and doing his job, ended up for working for this business as a troubleshooter. So I'd get phone calls like, pack your bags, you're going to Warrington tomorrow, Kurt. We've got this problem at this drinks company and go and sort it out for us. Oh, pack your bags, you're going here. So I was all over the place, really, mm-hmm. doing that job. But I'd say it's probably one of the – it was probably my favourite job, but the bit I didn't like was all the travel. But it, I absolutely love that job. Solving problems at the end of the, at the beginning or the end of the travel, it was all right. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing because I mean, what it did for me that job, I got within six months. I knew virtually everyone in the business. I knew all the contracts. I knew the senior team inside and out. And I actually walked into head office one day with a guy who'd worked for the company for about two years. And I walked in, and everyone's going, "Hello, Kirk. Hello, Kirk." And he's like, "I've worked here two years. No one knows me. How do they know you? You've only been here five minutes." Um, so it gave me great exposure. I got lots of experience and um, it set me on the track that I'm on. You know, it set me on the keep progressing, keep keep um, keep moving forward and, and absorb as much information as I could and, 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 and take that with me to every different contract I went on. And is that something that you sort of put in at the beginning to ab- absorb everything that you that come that comes towards you, and then apply, absorb, apply, absorb, apply? Yeah. Well, they took me on. To, actually, they took me on to run a contract initially, and that sort of fell through. But then, and that's how I ended up on this central role. But in between me, they wanted to get me a full time contract to look after a business. Um, they sent me like everywhere, so I went to loads of different contracts, understood what they did on site, things like that. So yeah, it was. Um, that that that's how that transposed really. I ended up on that, and that that was the next thing that happened was I'd worked for that business for a while, and I ended up getting a contract, and I ended up running um, a contract up in uh, Pontefract, which was quite interesting, and um, that started to come to an end, and I ended up back on central support, and I didn't want to do all the travelling again because um, I'd had a twelve months or so to twelve eighteen months on a contract, going home every night because we were living in Doncaster at this time. So I was going home, seeing my family, and it was great. And I thought, I don't really want to do all that travelling again. You've done some moving about, haven't you? Yeah, to be fair, I've lived in Manchester, uh, Holland, Nuneaton, Preston, Doncaster, and then back to Nuneaton. But I'm not moving from here at the minute. I'm staying here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I have moved about. So I forget what I was up to then. Oh yeah, so uh, you were just saying how you got the con- you're living in Doncaster and you like going home. Yeah, and you got this other contract. So I thought I need to I need to I need a permanent contract. I don't want to go back on the road, as it were. Um, so I ended up work going and gaining a, a permanent job, a permanent contract with um, it was called Rugby Cement at the time, RMC. It's now Semex, and I ran the site up there, which was delivering cement and looking after the team. That was an interesting job, and. When that operation was taken back in house, as it were, because it was done by TNT, uh, I decided that I wanted to work for a business in house. So I actually jumped ship and joined them. Um, All right. It was a strategic decision. So I actually moved. That's how I ended up back down here because I actually said to my, who was going to be my boss, I said, You've got two managers running that site down in rugby, which run. Which delivers fifty five percent UK cement. That you're going to. This wasn't doing anyone out of a job. You've got two managers doing it now. They're going to go. Don't replace two managers. Just give me the job, and I'll do the two people's jobs. Um, 
So that's what I did with a obviously. And a, that's how it went. Obviously, a, that's what I said to him, and then, and I give him. I told him how much how much he wanted paying, which was quite a substantial pay rise. And still less than what they were paying out for two people. Yeah, I'm talking about ten grand pay rise. I said that's what I'm after, right. and he paid it. He paid it me because he was obviously saving. And I, anyway, that's where he ended up. So yeah, and that was that was interesting. That was great. Um, a brilliant business, um, and then that was taken over by Semex, which is a phenomenal machine as a business. I'd like to call it. It's like the Borg. They actually. <laughs> they take over businesses and absorb the best bits, remove all the stuff they might have had before and replace it with the new bits. So continually they're evolving their business machine. And then that gets rolled out across the globe at every every operation. It's just right, some real investment. Oh, it's 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 crazy. And then that was the I saw that job. I ended up doing um an internal MBA for want of a better word. It, I end up on a a course with Semex. They sent me to. It was a course that was run by Stanford in, uni- in university in California. So we did two weeks in Stanford, two weeks in uh, INSEAD in uh, te- in uh, Mont- Fontainebleau in Par- outside Paris, and then two weeks in Tecno Monterrey in uh, Mexico. But this was over. Christ, tw- you don't have to get about you. Who's built this? This was over 12 months. There was 150 senior managers. My, it should have been my boss who went on it, but he didn't want to go it, so he sent me on it. So I was with 100, there's 150 of us on this course over 12 months. But what happened with the course, you was, you was put with... So I had people in my team from Poland, uh, Ireland, Spain, Colombia, wherever. There's loads of different people. There's about six of us in a team. And they give you a project. You had to... You had a project they had to deliver. You had no budget. You had no budget, and uh, yeah, you couldn't get any funds from anywhere. So you either had to do a cost saving and cost reduction, or generate extra profit. So it was, it was, it was, it's quite nuts. So yeah, that 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 was that was really interesting. But and but that that business for me was about two things. You was either I was a logistics person, I was a supply chain person. Nowhere in anywhere else in any of the businesses did they have a supply chain business like we had in the uk it was all subcontracted so the only way to progress in that business was either to go into procurement which i didn't want to do or was to specialize in cement manufacturing and i didn't want to do that either so i still wanted to progress i was still hungry for the next level so i I jumped ship i didn't jump ship i I gained a role with um i won't even mention the name because we're going to talk about that in more detail but Running three sites uh, in the UK, delivering product for British Gypsum. I had a £23 million a year budget, about 150, 200 staff, uh, and three sites. So I thought I was going places then when I got that job. Really did. It certainly sounds like you're, hand, you're spinning a lot of plates there. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I had a team of, I had a finance team, I had about four or five people in my finance team. I had engineers, I had uh, health and safety people working for me. I'd, I'd, HR, I had all sorts, you know what I mean? It was like, a, well, can you imagine, can't you, the size of that business, £23 million a year. It's a, quite a big job, quite a big operation. Mm-hmm. And that's where my problems started, and that's this is where my second key turning point in my life came. If you want me to talk about that, I will. Um, yeah, that'd be fab. So what happened there, all my previous roles, and I've obviously done all this training, I've done the internal, I've done the internal MBA, I've, I've got CPC National, I've got 
I've got loads of business qualifications, yeah, because I'm hungry for it. So I goes from those businesses where all my, what I was doing was actually I was being uh, motivating my team. I was looking for innovation. I was looking, always looking for constant, continual improvement and how can we reduce costs with the help of the team through team meetings and planning and all, all that sort of stuff. I went from that to doing a lot of report writing. Uh, and this is where my problem starts because I was doing a lot of report writing and my boss was picking me up on the use of some of the words I was using, like the use of where and were and there and there. I was missing words out in lines, in in, in text when I was sending emails. And it just kept pulling me up and saying, I don't know what, you know, it was like, it got really bad because he was continually picking me up on these issues. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get them right. You know, it's like, what is the problem? Why can't I get this right? I'm checking my stuff a couple of times and I'm sending it off and it's wrong. And a friend of mine who's now a teacher was a journalist and she said, I think you're dyslexic. Now, bear in mind I'm 44. I'm like, you are for dyslexic? Now, my eldest lad's severely, quite badly dyslexic. So, you know, it's hereditary and I thought, oh, she might have a point here. And uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it was hereditary, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's genetic and you tend to find um, it affects more males and females, but it is genetic. So if you find someone who's dyslexic, there's normally a link with a, one of the parents will be dyslexic or, you know what I mean? Right. It is a hereditary thing. It's genetic. So, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you you find this out at 44. That seems like quite a late a late time in life. Is that is that a normal thing? I I, I genuinely don't know. Not nowadays. I think a lot of people pick up. I still remember one of my teachers when I was in the we called it the first year. Now God knows what they call it now in this modern age. But I was 11, and um, I remember I think that's called year seven. Now. Something like that took me out of out the class and said. You know, talk, I, I can remember it now talking about words and did words jump around on the thing and do you do this, you struggle with that. So that teacher must have identified with something then. But I just mm-hmm. turned around and went, no, because it did. Do you know what I mean? It was really bizarre. Yeah. Um, and I just thought I, sh- I wasn't as clever as everybody else. And a lot of people, I think, are the same. So it never got picked up in, because I went to school in the 60s and 70s, 60s. I finished school in 1982. So... Do you know what I mean? It's only like the last yeah. 10 years or so it's people are really getting into it, but not enough. So a lot of people my age tend to find out the same way I did when they go into a a role where they do role report writing. Because I'd not winged it all my life, but I'd been in roles where I didn't it didn't really matter. So Well that's the thing. I mean you're not you 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 you've got you're doing very well in your current roles, which doesn't it wouldn't highlight dyslexia would it it wouldn't bring that to the forefront because you're doing other things no because because so, a lot of my interactions with a senior team i mean i used to do presentations to senior teams and it was like uh powerpoint slides information this is where we are these are our plans this is what we're doing off we go so you don't need to have a lot of uh yeah you know what i mean it, and yeah so that's why i think it took so long to get picked up and when I got tested, it was like a relief. I actually was quite emotional when I found out. I actually uh, got quite upset, not because I was dyslexic, but it explained what I'd gone through from through my whole life and why I was the way I was. And what, what I mean, I, I'm quite naive. I don't know a great deal about dyslexia, um, but how how do how do people test for that? 
Well, what, how you currently going to get tested? You can do a couple of things. You can do a mini test yourself on, on online, which is free, and it asks you a load of questions like, do you have trouble? This is off the top of me. Do you have trouble tying your laces or do you have trouble with your left and right? So you get your space awareness. There's all different things, triggers that if you answer a lot of yeses, there's a distinct possibility you've got this, you're dyslexic. And then what I did, I went to a British Dyslexia Association and was tested. And it's about a two or three hour test. Uh, and I think it costs about four or 500 quid, which is, I think, absolutely bonkers. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't cost really? that. Wow. That's, yeah. So that's crazy. So that puts a lot of people off going to get tested. Um, but I wanted to know. I needed to know. And that's why I went and got tested. So they give you a load of tests to do. Um, I can't remember them all now. But one of the things they do give you a test on, which is quite key for people, is uh, I do it in my talks. Dyslexia is made... The language is made up of several elements, the way something's said, the way the image of something like a pen, how your hand moves to write it and how it's spelled. Now, um, dyslexics tend to remember the word rather than read the word. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you remember the word, yeah? So you look at it and you remember it, oh, that says dyslexia or that says whatever. Now, a great way to see if someone is dyslexic is give them a phonical, phonic word that you've made up that's non nonsense. Just make a word up and write it down and give it to them to read. And the chances are they won't be able to read it. Right. Um, so, yeah, the test is quite good, actually. It's Because um, one of the things, what the thing with a dyslexic, your active working memory is on overload all the time. It's running like a steam train. You know, it's like really powerful, really fast. So what was happening, and I realised when I was doing the test is, I wasn't even, I was answering questions to things like tick boxes. I was virtually doing them instantaneous. I was looking at someone going tick, tick, tick. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, because my brain was just analyzing it so quickly and, and coming up with the answer. So, yeah. Nice. It's, it's quite interesting that. I mean, obviously coming from total naivety on the subject, but yeah, it's, I, can't, I find it ridiculous that you have to pay four or five hundred quid to a test. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something I'm looking at the minute, but yeah, that's another story. But yeah, I think it's 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 one of those things, isn't it? It's a niche, it's a niche product, a niche market, and they just charge what they want. Basically, I think it's wrong for someone to give you a few pieces of paper and then go off and analyze it. I think it's I think it's crazy. But anyway, that's for another time. So you find out you're dyslexic, and you get this sort of this feeling of emotion. Not necessarily a bad thing, like you said. Um, but does that then, re does that, did it, did it give you a total f flipping focus and, or was it, um, a gradual thing? Cause no, it was, you're no longer in this, it, you're no longer in this corporate world. It, it, was, you, so. it was, no, it was pretty instant because I was still working for in the corporate world when I found out I was dyslexic and there's a bit of a story behind that, but basically, um, did it stop you doing the position? Did it stop you doing your role? Well, it didn't stop me doing it, but this is this is the, the bizarre thing of a, a business of 500,000 employees. Um, I got told by HR, um, we can't get anyone to write reports. So this, when I found I was dyslexic, I said, well, I don't want anyone to write reports. You've got the problem with them, not me. I'll quite happily carry on writing them. You just have to be aware that, you know, that's what it is. You know, there might be some errors in it and I'll, I'll do everything I can. I even got software and everything to try and help me. And there's a lot of softwares developed now. It's a lot, it's a lot, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's better now, but I even did try and did all that. Anyway, what happened was I had totally re-engineered my operation 
over about 12 months. Totally re-engineered it. Um, went through changes, the lot. Every, everyone was at risk of redundancy apart from me. And, we'd, and we went through this project because we had to do it. And after we'd done this, my boss sat down with me in the in my appraisal and says, oh, we're going to do some reorganisation. I went, there's only me left. So hmm. you want to get rid of me. But basically, what to sidestep me into another, into another job. So I just said, you know what? Give me redundancy. I'm going. Stick your job. And uh, I think a couple of days after that, I said to my boss, I'm going on garden leave for three months. I'm leaving. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm, I'm off. So I quit my job because I got to that point because I was getting uh, a lot of stabbing in the back from my colleagues, people who thought they should have been doing my job. It was horrible, and I had this on top. I got to the point where I was... Was this was this totally a side thing from this dyslexia that you... Yeah, it was a side thing, but if you can imagine, you've got one thing, so you've got... I've got I'm getting crap off my boss and the business because of my, dis, these, you know, my reports and X, Y, and Z, um, and I've got people that are working for me or working inside me basically stabbing me in the back. I won't go into details, but they were stabbing me in the back. And, I've, and it, it all got to the point where I thought I was about to have a nervous breakdown. I said to my wife, I can't carry on anymore. I've had enough. I don't even want to work ever again. That's mm-hmm. it. I've had enough. Um, I don't want to work ever again. That, that was what I said to her in the kitchen. I don't want to work ever again. I don't want to do anything. So she actually put on hold what she was doing. And then and this is, we started our business and went off and did uh, IT implementations. So I, I, I just took the decision. That's it. I'm jacking my job in. Before my three months um, garden leave was up, I'd got a, my first client, um, which was <laughs> very bizarre. Um, so, and what was this first client? What, what were you, what were you it was, doing together? What were you doing offering them? It was. Um, remember, I talked. So I was working for TNT before. Moved meant to Siva. Well, Siva was a, a new business in essence. Actually, someone from Siva who knew me says, um, "I'm not going to interview you, but there's this." potential opportunity go and speak to these guys so i was interviewed and i was offered the job and, and i started the first day after my garden leave it was it was implementing a um, a new business that they'd taken over from someone else it actually took an operation from a business and, and outsourced it to, to siva so my role was to go in there implement the the new system cheapy people over do it on time on budget and uh, and without any safety issues which we did so that was uh that gave me a bit of a boost and at the same time as this these uh, an opportunity came up to go to university to do a postgraduate course so i was on an hour and didn't think i'd be able to do it didn't think i was good enough my wife said yes you are going to do it go and do it just go and try it um and the postgrad turned into a master's degree wow so stick that eh? yeah so you can imagine getting me uh, me scroll in 2012 in uh, Coventry University in the cathedral. Well, I'm, it's quite. F- I'm just thinking. I'm thinking back to when we first started chatting, and you were talking about all these corporates that don't really want to look at anybody who hasn't got a degree. You leave and get one, and tell them to stuff it anyway. Yeah, and I I, d- I did it in my uh, master's degrees in global entrepreneurship. And for my dissertation, you know, you could you had to do it. It's a business related, but I did it on dyslexia, and I studied and researched dyslexia and how are dyslexics predispose entrepreneurs. 
and that's how I've ended up doing my talking on it and things like that because I've actually went away and had look at it. Um, because my whole me one of my aims from leaving the corporate life in 2010 was how do I stop people going through this? How do I help people avoid this? What can I do? And it took me a few years to work it out. And the way is to encourage people, dyslexics, to become entrepreneurs and to try and show the world what it is to be a dyslexic that we're not thick because a lot of people think they're thick and they can't read and write. And actually, I think it's more of a lack. I think it's a lack of education, isn't it? On on it. Yeah, and that really? and that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to achieve with coming on the shows like yourself and doing all the things that I do. And that's the whole thing behind it, really. So you mentioned that. You've got two businesses. Yep. Now, um, what is the other one? Because obviously we've got, it sounds like a bit of contracting work, this one. Yeah, it was contracting. But what I do now, the, the, the business I, my business is Dougie Stone. So it was a bit of contracting, which I can do. And I help businesses improve what they do, really. You know, there's, I can talk about that as well. But um, what I've also done in my business, it's two sides. It's the, the contract side about processes, like we're, we're talking about just then and it's the people side so um i like to do my public speaking i work one-on-one with individuals and 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 with businesses to help them tap into the dyslexic people so and this is this is using all that absorb apply absorb apply isn't yeah it, from what you've been yeah. doing in the past yeah so that that's what i do in Doug, within dougie stone is is those those things so i can go into businesses help them with the processes i i usually give the one where i went into a business that was four weeks away from losing an £800,000 customer, the biggest customer they had. And we looked at the processes, looked where they were having the faults, put things in place with the guys, the team, and then, you know, they re-signed a contract. So that's the sort of stuff I can do. But I really want to get into this dyslexic uh, community and get them going as well. So that's Dougie Stone in a bit of a nutshell. It's people and Mm -hmm. processes. Now, the other business is my wife is a designer and she's phenomenal. Um, so we've got a design business near our home and she creates uh, wall art statement pieces. So the tiles basically out of uh, concrete, plaster, ceramics, wood. Um, yeah. I've seen some of the pictures on uh, online and there's, there's some, like I said, they are very statement pieces. Yeah. So it's moved on because she started off as a ceramicist. So when we was, when we, this year we go again. A ceramicist, that's got, that's word of the day. Ceramicist, a designer maker making ceramics. So to get to making a ceramic tile or ceramic piece in the kiln, you have to go through about five steps. You have to make a model of it. Then you, I won't bore you with it, but you have to vacuum form it. Then you have to make a, a silicon mold and anyway you go through this process till you can finally pour liquid clay or slip into a mold and create a ceramic tile so as we're making these things and she's good at doing the tiles she's like well actually this uh this, this first bit that i do when i make my model actually could be a product in its own right so she started milling wood and the wood is is amazing some of the wooden pieces are amazing so then the second bit where we vac form the pieces is is um which is plastic you know plastic pieces we can actually make them so we actually make plastic tiles which are obviously very light so they can go in in situations where it's light or you don't want um you know you can remove them and change them so like a kid's room where you might can continually change the decor then they're a cheaper option so that's that's what she does there. So she's 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 pretty good in what she does. So in that business, Sandra de- develops the ideas, the concepts, designs them, does the initial work in that area, and then I will, if it's 
uh, a ceramic piece or a concrete piece, I will then make it. So I'll produce it and then she'll do the finishing off and things like that. Ah, so you're hands on with it as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, Sharing the trade, framing the craft. Yeah, it's it's been, I've had a, I think I've had a six year apprenticeship as a, a designer maker. And <laughs> so when people ask me what I do, it's uh, how long have you got? We'll have a chat. But you're interested about the lasers stuff now, aren't you? Yes. How are you finding that? Because over at Hacksaw, we've been we've been doing that. Well, we've been working with the company, doing a few bits and bobs over the last few years. We put on a couple of exhibitions using lasers. Yeah. So how are you how are you getting to grips with that? Yeah, it, that was a Christmas present for Sandra two years ago. Was it? Yeah, a lovely. She went, oh, thanks. Well, oh, no, you. Can. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I've been using the laser. Uh, the reason the reason for the laser is oh, it's actually yours. You own it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I thought you were right. Wow. No, it's it's. I'll tell you later what it is. It's not um. It's not a big industrial one. I, that might, I might buy one. Then these next. It's um. It's yeah. It's it, it, I've actually built it. You had to you had to build it. All comes in components, and it's uh, it's it's open source programming. It's um. Benbox is the control system that controls the laser. That's right, have a look. I'll tell you about it later. So anyway, I've got this um. The idea for the laser was we create wooden tiles and it was to make the wooden tiles so we could identify the wooden tiles and it makes it more personal in what she's producing. So what she what's on the back of every tile that we produce, the wooden ones, is the name of the tile, what it is, so the description, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, out of the rain or whatever. And then it's got the website on, so Sandra's website, smart.com, and then it's got her signature on as well. Right, very cool. So for every tile we do, she gives them to me and gives me the artwork if it's any if it's different from what she's done before, and then I laser it on. Brilliant. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So that was... So, sorry, carry on. Yeah, so what I've started doing with that now, I've actually um, started doing some stuff for myself. So I've got, I've got pizza oven, so I've started... I've just been lasering today. One of me. Yeah, I'm not jealous about that. No, it's... I do see the photos of your pizza from your back garden. I think, yeah, that's brilliant. Oh man, it's awesome. I love it. Um, yeah, so I've got wooden peels which you use to put the pizzas in the pizza oven in and out. So I've actually she's redesigned my logo today. So I've got Dougie Stone on the handles, and I've got Dougie Stone my logo, and in the middle it says pizzas, and it looks like a pepperoni. So that <laughs> you'll see them on the internet soon when I finished it. There's a big journey happening there. Yeah. A very, very big journey. Yeah. And there's a few things that I've kind of pulled out of that. And that's been the sort of absorb and apply. So taking absolutely everything you can and then over every, any given time period and then throw all of that at what you're doing to progress and move forwards. Mm. And there's also, there's, you've also mentioned a few times that you're lacking self-confidence that's come from uh, Sandra. Uh, such as pushing on for the university and things like yeah. that. So, we, although you've you've gone from uh, you've mentioned there's two, you mentioned two sort of how, what you felt sort of turning points in that, but there's there's probably a handful of small sub points just that in in the whole of the story. What? Well, there's this twofold question. What do you think your the the hardest thing you've come up against is throughout all of that, and what it doesn't have to be related to the answer to that question, but what would, what is the the biggest thing that you'd say to people going forwards who are in a in a boat of wanting to move career or whether whether that's starting a small business or just moving to moving into something else completely different, still being employed? 
Yeah, that was quite a, that was quite long winded. Yeah, so I, I, I think I've got it. We'll go with the hardest the, thing first, I guess. The, the, I'd, say, I'd say the hardest thing was me. The hardest thing you've had to overcome was me and my self confidence, because uh, a lot of people are probably the same. But dyslexics, it's like on steroids. There's this little voice in the back of your head saying you're not good enough. Look at them; they're better. That was the hardest thing for me to go over. Once I've got, do you think that's because of um, the lack of education around th- dyslexia and, and what it, the sort of understanding people have of it? Yes and no, because which because, is not exactly which is not strictly true. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes and no, because th- don't forget, I didn't find out till I was 44 as dyslexic. So f- up to that being 44, I j- I just had this niggling doubt in my head that I wasn't as good as ah, everybody right, else. Yeah. And sort of the imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I was doing things, and I was actually looking, going, "How have I got this job? How have I got this job? How have I got? Do you know what I mean? How have I progressed to this point?" Mm-hmm. Um, so. Once I, and this is what I want to do to people, is unleash their confidence. Because the biggest thing you can have, and I'm not talking arrogance now, I'm talking confidence, yeah, is getting people to change the mindset that you are good enough, you're as good as anybody else you've got. You should add value to this planet and there's something you can do, go and do it. So meeting Sandra and what Sandra's done for me is phenomenal. You know, it's she's given me the confidence. She believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. So that's uh, so that's that that point. And I forget what the second point was. It, it was too. It was it was quite a long uh, long winded question. And uh, the next one was, um, what what would you say your big out of everything uh, you've done? You what's the biggest thing that you've learned and you'd pass on to people that are either that are going from one thing to the whether it's uh, moving from being employed to self-employed, uh, whether that's contract work or starting a business or going to another employment that's completely different, like chalk and cheese. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. You will have transferable skills. So if you're in a in a job and want to move to something else, you will have skills in that business or that thing you're doing that would, on the face of it, not seem relevant in another business. Does that make Does that make sense? Are you yeah. you'll have skills that that. And I always use Steve Jobs as an example with his uh, the iPhone and the Apple and all the things he did there. He wasn't restricted by what I knew. He pulled into other things. So, and for me, it's it's gain as much experience in every role that you're in or every job you're doing. Try and try and go the extra mile because you will learn more. You'll get more progression if you stay in in your own business uh, in a in a corporate world. But if you're taking the leap and doing your own business. Unfortunately, we only see the end result of some people's success. So as an example, we'll see um, Richard Branson doing what he's doing or on the name makes famous people. We see, we see the facade and we see the end result of probably years of pain and years of failure and yeah. years of scratching head going, what is going to happen now? I'm not moving on. So... Everyone's been lulled. A lot of people are lulled into a false sense of security. Well, well, everyone's everyone's progressing. It's dead easy. It's not easy. It is not difficult. It just takes you probably take you longer than you expect, and it can be a lot of hard work. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've, you've only you've got to look at. I mean, it, it's it's quite apt that you mentioned that like Richard Branson and, uh, and Steve Jobs and things like that. When they started, to, when everybody know, came to know them of who they are or were now, they were much older in life. It's only now as, mm. and obviously they didn't know them back then. So they've had all these years of getting 
of having this failure and pain and, and they're getting older and older. It's only it's only now with the introduction of all this fancy tech and the Zuckerbergs of the world and things like that. We're, the problem is it, that's that's spoiling it because yeah. people see these, like Zuckerberg was the youngest billionaire or something like that, wasn't he? So they, they see these young young people that are rich and just think, well, they've got to do it. They've, it's like get rich quick and why can't I do that? But it's totally wrong. They've, they've, they've been still been doing it a long time since they were in the teens um, but it's just this this in, influx of tech possibilities that's putting that false yep. look on it, isn't it? Yeah, and it's the same. I, I'm not a football fan, but it's like football. If you look at football and things like that, the, you've you've got some amazing footballers, and I don't even like football, but I'm using it as an analogy. But not everybody. There's kids on the park now playing football think they're going to be Ronaldo. Sorry, yeah. sorry, kids. There's only going to be a small proportion of you going to be in Ronaldo, and it's the same in business. There's only a small proportion of people going to be like Richard Branson, or and the most. But the most important thing about that is that's fine. Yeah, that no, oh, no that's fine. That is not fine. to be Branson or Ronaldo. It's fine. There's a lot of other people out there who are like uh, who, are, who are not that of quality, but are still excellent yeah in their field exactly and i i normally give people the advice that if they're worried about jumping ship and starting their own business because everyone's got to put food on the table or they've got a lifestyle that they currently have and they want to try and maintain some of that is um do something while you're building something else up so you know like i've been doing my uh, work with businesses the stuff that i can do whilst i've been building my Dougie Stone brand up and my Dougie Stone stuff up, yeah? Um, same as Sandra. Sandra's still doing some IT implementation because that gives us the finances and the funds to put into the studio, which has took us a strategic look. It's took us years to get to the point. We only launched two years ago from mm-hmm. probably starting in 2010. So, right. you know, I'm waiting for Sandra to become an overnight success because she will. Yeah, and it's, after it's about, about twelve it's about years, taking... should be an overnight success. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And everyone go, "Oh, this overnight success." Yeah, well, what about all the seven days a week and the twelve-hour days and working at three o'clock in the morning? People don't see that. So, I would say to people, don't be disillusioned by what you see going on. Every, what you're feeling, everyone else has felt who's become successful. Yeah, it can be lonely, but get around people that will will help you and can uh, break up some of that monotony. And while we're talking about the text of the world uh, and the story that you're trying to tell, how can people sort of hear that story? Where can they where can they see more of it? What of me? Mm, yeah, where can they get in touch? Where they well, can they ask you questions, find out what you're shouting about? I'm I'm on Twitter at Dougie Stone, so find out everything's Dougie Stone, by the way. Um, <laughs> the website's dougiestone.com, dead easy. Um, I've got a radio show on Radio Warwickshire which is on a Tuesday night, half past six, and which goes onto a podcast, which is uh, on iTunes, Dougie Stone. So I'm I'm pretty much all over the place. And, oh, I'll tell you what I do do, which I absolutely love. And when I first started off, people thought it was bonkers. I do pounce interviews at networking meetings. Ah, yeah, I've seen do you like, these, yeah. Do you like them? I only watch every, I don't watch them all, if I'm honest, because no, I tend to be at work. Yeah. But yes, uh, it's quite fun. Yeah. And that's another thing. It's I have people coming to my networking group who are going to, to help their business grow. And th- to get them to a wider audience, it's, I tell you what, I'm going to start just randomly interviewing people. And I call them pounce interviews because they don't know they're going to be interviewed. I just get up to them and start interviewing them so they're quite fun so if anyone wants to check out Kurt Pixon on Facebook um, 
I will accept you, but you know, depends. Anyway, I'll accept people on there and have a look at didn't, have a look at some of them. Yeah, didn't you end up wearing somebody else's shirt the other day? Oh yeah, that was no, it wasn't someone else's shirt. He actually gave me that. That was yeah, that's what I mean. So you, for those for those that don't know you, you wear uh, printed shirts which are either Star Wars related, suit related, or there's a Christmas one coming. Oh, the Christmas uh, ones. And I see you in this guy's other shirt. Yeah, well, it was Jamie Denyer who came and did this uh, foresight, this talk about. I won't spoil it because he's going around the country sharing it, but he's basically started talking about his nephew who was was killed and what that's done for him. Um, and there's a handprint on these t-shirts, and it's his nephew's handprint. And he gave me, right. and he gave me one of his t-shirts. He gave three out on the night, and he gave me one. And you know what? As soon as I put it on, I felt something. I don't know what, but it just—it was amazing. And uh, I actually went and wore that at another networking group the next day. And I never—I always wear my stuff. Do you know what I mean? But I wore his yeah. as a mark, mark of respect to him. What a great bloke, Kirk. Thanks very much for sharing your story. It's—it's uh, it's certainly one with some miles on it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, mate. I've enjoyed it. It's been, I appreciate it. I really do. It's been great to talk to you. And uh, thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Turning Point. As ever, I've been your host, Daniel Moore, and our guest today has been Kirk Pickstone. Remember, together we can make one of life's biggest hurdles. Hold up. 